Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Mark chapter 2. We've been working our way systematically through the Gospel of Mark. Chapter by chapter, verse by verse. God, thank you. You are a mighty Savior, the one who conquered the grave, the one who has conquered everything that we were not able to, Father. And we say thank you for that, Lord, that we have eternity to look forward to with you. Lord, this, this life, this momentary life is just a vapor. Even if we live to be 100 years old, in comparison to 10,000 years of eternity, Lord, it is just a drop. It is just a, a moment in time. I pray, pray for every heart here that we would make the most of our time. And the way to do that is by living wholeheartedly for you. Father, I pray that we would hear from your word today. I pray that it would pierce our heart, prick our heart, Lord, to stir us up toward good works and the things that you would have us do. I pray, Father, that our, we would walk through life with our eyes open, our spiritual eyes. I ask, Lord, that you would bless this study, God, that you would guide us through this time. We love you, Lord, and we offer it to you as a sacrifice of praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Still trying to get my singing voice back, so excuse me. That song got me all excited. <laughs> Catching my breath. Start today with a question, and you can answer. Shout it out if you feel so compelled to. This is audience participation time. What type of book do you enjoy? Imagine, before you answer, imagine that you had a whole weekend to do nothing. <laughs> right? <laughs> imagine. We have to imagine that. And you had a library available to you. What's the book that you grab? What type of book do you go for? All right. Biography, what else? Mysteries, nice. Action. What guy just said romance novels? We're going to have to talk afterward, all right? <laughs> fantasy, Christian fantasy, good stuff. Yeah, and I think, you know, we, my, my taste and probably your taste over the years has changed as you've matured and as you've grown. And, and I, remember, I remember the first book that I got into, it was like fourth grade, fifth grade, somewhere around there. It was back before DVDs were in car players, you know, and, and we actually had to find something to do. It was either fight with my sister or read a book. And mom and dad didn't really care for me fighting with my sister, so uh, it was read a book. And, and we were going somewhere, and I'd brought this little book, and it was Oliver Twist. And uh, it was, you know, it, it kind of opened my world to reading, and I, I, it was in that book that I started to be able to picture things and, and understand the story in my mind. And, and I remember reading some of those classics, Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, and Oliver Twist, and, and Moby Dick, and, and all those things, and thoroughly enjoyed them. But, but, and I've read novels and, and fantasy stuff for a long time, but um, I think as I've matured, my greatest interest these days is biographies. I want to know not just a story, I want to know someone's story. I want to know 
It can be an autobiographical or biographical, doesn't matter. Just I, I'm interested in people's lives. And, uh, and I think that, that's just, for me, that's a, a, I noticed in my life that was a sign of maturity when I switched from the fantasy, you know, wheel of time, weird stuff to, um, to reading about people and reading biographies. And I think that's a, a sign of, of maturity. It's not that and, and any of those are wrong. It's just I, I, it's something that I've noticed in my life. My favorite part of teaching the Bible, I, what I thoroughly enjoy as we go through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is building out that story, somebody's story, painting the picture so that maybe we all can kind of step into somebody's life or imagine ourselves in that scene. That was one of the greatest compliments as I began to teach. My, it was actually my sister came up to me and she said, Chris, you just have a way of painting the picture that we can all see it really clearly. And I took that as a, a moment of pride, and not a wrong kind of pride, but just a thankfulness to God to say, well, that's what I enjoy doing. So to hear that I'm, I'm good at that, I'm grateful for that. But I just love pausing and considering as we read through the Bible. So that's what we're going to do today. I think what we're, the text we're going to read today would be something that if we were reading Mark chapter 2, we would consider it a transition from the time of, of Jesus healing the paralytic man. That's what we studied last week, right? The four, his four friends lowered him through the roof there in Peter's house. And, and, and that was a great story. And, the, and what's coming after this where Jesus has an interaction with the Pharisees, that's an intense story as well. And we would look at these four, five verses that we're going to look at today as almost a transition and, and just kind of read past them. But I don't want to do that. I want to pause for a second. So we're going to pick it up in Mark chapter 2, verse 13. It says, then he, the he is capitalized there, we're talking about Jesus. He went out again by the sea. That is the Sea of Galilee. He's in the the town of Capernaum. And all the multitude came to him and he taught them. This is what we see. Wherever Jesus goes, he gets a crowd. People start following because he had performed so many miracles because uh, of, of the things that he had done in that city. But what I like here and what I'm reminded of is that he taught them. It says in verse 14, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? You can almost hear the, the, the tone of their voice. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. So like I said, we just came from the story where Jesus healed the paralytic, crowd pressed into Peter's house, they bust open the roof, they lower him down. Jesus says, just so you know, I can forgive sins on earth. Son, take up your mat and walk. And the dude walks out. Beautiful miracle. Not the point of the story. The story is there to show that Jesus, in fact, has the power to forgive sins on earth. 
He's walking away from that. And we don't know how much time has passed since that story. It could be in between verse 12 and verse 13, a month goes by. It could be that this was in the same day. I don't know. But he, he finds himself leaving the crowd there at Peter's house and walking along the shore of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. And once again, wherever Jesus went, a crowd seemed to follow. But Jesus in this moment doesn't heal people. He's not just the genie in the lamp. He's not just the magician that can fix your broken arm. He teaches them, as it says there in verse 13. that He's fulfilling what we talked about last week in, in Luke chapter 4. I have come that I might teach the poor. I have come uh, to, to bless the poor in spirit. I have come to, to show people the gospel is what it says there in Luke 4. And just so we all understand, you brothers and sisters in Christ, that's our role too. As Jesus taught, it is our role to teach as well. For 18 months, we had a Bible study in our home where we went through the Gospel of Matthew. And every time we gathered, we quoted the Great Commission there at the end of the book of Matthew in Matthew chapter 28. I, I pressed the people that showed up to memorize the Great Commission, and we would quiz one another to see if we knew it. We, we knew it. And we had all kinds of people there, kids. There was a, a girl that was four years old there who memorized the Great Commission. There was, you know, and there were older people like me, and, and I tried to memorize. The older you get, the harder it is to memorize. Amen? The sponge is hard. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus says in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them. See, there it is. There's our commission. Teaching them to do something. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Our role in, in fulfilling the Great Commission and your role, my role as followers of Christ is to do what he did, to teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded. So all of us, in one form or another, are teachers. That's the role we embrace as followers of Christ. Jesus moves from the crowd there on the seashore to one man, Levi. This is the guy I want to look at today, this man named Levi. We can read past this man. We can just use this as a bridge almost to move from one great story to another. But Jesus didn't move past him. Jesus stopped. So maybe we should stop. Take a look. Who is Levi? Who is this guy? You know what? There's no record in any of the gospels of any word that he spoke. We don't have one single recorded word of anything that he said, yet everyone in this room has been touched by him. We all have been impacted by this man, Levi, and the life that he lived. You see, Levi is his Hebrew name, but that's not what he went by. He went by the name in his Roman name. You might know him as Matthew, the man that wrote the gospel of Matthew. So though we don't have anything, any single word that he spoke, we certainly have plenty of words that he wrote. And we have been touched by reading through the gospel of Matthew. The name Matthew literally means the gift of God. And certainly having that gospel is a gift, one that we may be thankful for. 
Mark here records as, the, as Jesus interacts with this man, and he says in verse 14, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office. He sa- so Mark calls him Levi, the tax collector. Luke, as they record his Luke, Dr. Luke records it in his gospel. It's Levi, the tax collector. But it's interesting to look at how Matthew himself recorded this event where Jesus met him at the tax table and said, follow me. It says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. In Matthew's own account of this story about his life, he says, it's not just Matthew. It's not just Levi, the tax collector. It's Levi, the man. I have, I I am a, a person. I'm more than just my reputation. I'm more than just my job. We can get caught up into that, can't we? We, we, we judge people based on their reputation. Your reputation is what other people say about you. It's your character that we're interested in or should be. That's who you are. And Levi says, Matthew says, I'm a man. He had been shackled by his reputation, by his occupation. And understandably so, being a tax collector is not the most pleasant of jobs. He was an IRS agent, Right? When I say that phrase, what do you think? IRS agent. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if anybody is an IRS agent here, my apologies. Because <laughs> I, I play the stereotype. I, I've never met an IRS agent that I know of. I envision somebody that weighs about 95 pounds, male, greasy hair, pushing up his glasses, you know, Somebody you go, and they fall over, you know, that, that's, of course, it's stereotypical. I understand. But that's when I hear those words, IRS agent, that's, and on top of that, the job that they do is certainly not anybody that you want to hear from. Hi, this is Mark, your IRS agent. That's not the call you want to get, is it? Yet in his record, he reminds us, I'm not just a tax collector. I'm a man. And Jesus saw that. Jesus saw a man. Jesus moved past the crowd to meet the man. You understand, if you know any of the history at all, but I want to kind of build this out a little bit. Tax collectors in that day, probably more so than today, were a despised people. Tax collectors were Hebrews that turncoated. They, 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 they went against the nation of Israel. They, they turncoated and took a job working for Rome, collecting taxes from the Hebrews to give back to Rome. We understand that this was a huge issue and, and a, a, an area of debate because we see later in Jesus' life, the, the leaders, the religious leaders of the day come to Jesus and they ask him, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar? So you see the issue that they had with this. And what does Jesus say? Render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render under God the things that are God's. Yes, it's okay. Yes, it's proper for you to pay your taxes is what he's saying. But these were Hebrews that were now exacting the tax from fellow Hebrews and giving their money to Rome. Understand in that region where we are, we're in 
uh, Capernaum, there were three different tax seats. The official job title was chief publican, and they, they ruled different regions. There was one chief publican in Jericho. We know this guy. The guy that was the chief publican in Jericho is a man named Zacchaeus, right? The wee little man. And see, see, fits the stereotype, you know? And the wee little man was he. <laughs> You're welcome. The second tax seat, the second chief publican was um, in Caesarea. And the reason they set up shop there in Caesarea was because it was a large port. There were ships coming and going all the time. And of course, as ships come in, trade and goods come in. And so you want to tax those. So there was import-export taxes happening. So there was a chief publican in Caesarea. There was also a chief publican in Capernaum. Now, Matthew isn't the chief publican. He works for the chief publican. We don't know who he is. But Damascus was in the region, and Damascus was a, a, a place that all kinds of trade happened. There were trade routes going west, and so, um, and so they set up a shop there, and Matthew worked for this man in Capernaum. The chief publican, not Matthew's job, the chief publican would buy his seat from Rome. He would, he would go to Rome and say, I want to pay to be the guy who collects the taxes for you. Sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? Why would you pay for a job? Well, because of how lucrative it was. You see, Rome had a, a list of taxes to say, all right, you, ta- you, you collect this much. For example, there was a 10% ground tax. And the ground tax was, so Rome gets 10% of all your grain. There was a 20% wine tax. Sounds about right, like Rome, right? You know, We want the wine. Give us twice as much wine as grain. We got the party going on. There was a 20% wine and fruit tax. The income tax they would collect was 1%. (laughs) 1%. That'd be all right. (laughs) And then there was a poll tax, and that was a tax based on how many people you had in your family over the age of 14, and, and you would pay based upon that. So those are the taxes the chief publican would get. The reason that he would pay for his seat is because though the ground tax was 10% of all grain. When the Hebrew came to the tax seat, the, the chief publican would say, you need to pay 15% of your grain for, for grain tax. He would give 10% to the Romans, but he would keep 5% for himself. And so whatever he charged over what Rome wanted, that was his salary. And they were very lucrative. But you couldn't say anything against whatever the man decided to charge. So you could, you could rack up quick, quickly what you earned. Where Matthew sat was actually in the receipt of customs. And this was different than the ground tax and the income tax and the poll tax. This was do what you want tax. <laughs> this is whatever feels good, you go ahead and tax, right? There was a road tax. There were export taxes, there were import taxes, there was a bridge tax, there was a harbor tax, there was a town due, there was an axle tax, there was a wheel tax, they taxed ships, they taxed luxury items, really, whatever you wanted. Oh, you sleep with the window shut? 2%. Oh, you sleep with the window open? 3%, right? Lame is, there you go. Uh, But, you know, so whatever, there was no code. Whatever they wanted to charge, they could charge. That's what Matthew is doing. At one point in Roman history, those oppressed by Rome were paying 95% of their income to Rome. You got to keep 5%. And much of that was 
uh, filtered off and given to those men that would collect the tax. So you understand why Matthew was despised. You understand why he was hated by his people. He was considered a traitor. He's working for Rome. He would have had to work, by working for Rome, he would have had to work on the Sabbath. He's breaking the, the, the Levitical laws. He's breaking the, the Mosaic laws by working on the Sabbath. It was interesting to note, tax collectors, their word wasn't worth anything. They could not be witnesses in court. They were, their, their evidence was inadmissible because they could not be trusted. This is who Matthew Levi is. The question is, how did he get there? What, what happened in his life that he is willing to leave all that he knows, abandon his family, abandon his friends, abandon his heritage, and sit at this table in order to make money? Well, let's do a little CSI here. Let's, let's kind of try to piece some things together so we can learn more about this man that Jesus stopped at the table at. But the name Levi, his Hebrew name, he must have been brought up in a religious home. He, he was named after one of the 12 tribes. As he wrote his gospel, he quotes the Old Testament 99 times. That's more than the other three Gospels combined. He knew the Word of God. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the prophetic stories. He knew the law. And he, as he writes his Gospel, he goes back and and references it often. He knew his Scriptures. With a name like Levi, he most likely didn't come from the tribe of Judah or Dan or Issachar or Reuben. Most likely, he's either part of a priestly home those that would serve in the temple, or at least part of a Levitical home, those those that would assist the priests with a name like Levi. So he probably grew up like my kids do, right? This is our second home. We're here all the time. We got cots in the back, you know? We don't really, but, you know, it's just... Like they, 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 as soon as they walk in the door here, their shoes are off, right? You know, and when you guys aren't here, my kids, my boys are running around all over the place. It's just, this is home to them. Maybe that's how Levi, Matthew, grew up. He would have been intelligent, very intelligent. He would, in order to work for Rome, sitting in the publican seat, he would have had to know three languages. So he was multilingual. He would have had to know Latin, Aramaic, and Greek, at least, if not more. Yet he's willing to leave his family, abandon his friends, forsake his heritage, all for the sake of money. Was he just greedy? Can greed go that far? That you're willing to abandon everything that you know? I suppose so. I don't think it would be common, though. What else could drive him to this? It's interesting to note, as you read through the Gospel of Matthew, he uses the word hypocrisy more times in his Gospel than the entire Bible combined. Is that a clue for you and I? Did he witness something in his life that he felt was extremely hypocritical? 
And that's what drove him perhaps uh, to, to this job. Perhaps Matthew grew up in the religious system and saw what happens sadly often in religious homes. He saw the hypocrisy of whitewashed tombs. Are you tracking when I say that? That, that we, the, you know, the, the person plays church. The person lives it when he's in the public eye. The, they, they make a presentation, but he's a far, the person's a far different person when they're at home. Maybe he had to absorb some of that. People appearing to be godly, yet in the privacy of their home, they lived a very different life. I know somebody who grew up as a pastor's kid who saw that. Dad was the pastor, but he was a very different man at home. Made some very poor choices, and it turned this person away from God. Uh, That could turn a heart away from God, seeing that type of hypocrisy. Perhaps he saw some of the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of the day. It's interesting that they would, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they would condemn Rome for ex- excising tax on them, yet you go into the temple and they charge you in order to make your sacrifice. They tax you themselves in order for you to make your sacrifice, right? Jesus tossed the temple tables. He, he up, and what was the reason? Is because they were exacting a tax upon them to give the sacrifice, Talk about hypocrisy. Oh, don't let Rome do it, but we will. You guys know my angst for the name it, claim it, blab it, grab it, garbage preachers. Cannot stand that false religion of the prosperity gospel. Hate it. As as I was studying there, I heard a story about a guy, and this must have been years ago, but at the end, you know, they're always on TV. And then at the end of their program, they're always hitting you up for cash. You notice that? This guy was offering magic wallets. Of course, they didn't call them magic wallets, right? These are blessed wallets, right? You buy this wallet from me for $10, and your wallet will never be empty, right? The question is, if that's true... Why does he need my 10 bucks? He just needs one of his wallets, right? Right, there you go. That can cause a man to run from religion. That kind of hypocrisy. Perhaps Levi was abused by someone who claimed to be religious, yet took advantage of him physically, emotionally, sexually. That can turn a heart from all that he grew up with. We don't know what happened for sure. We're not given that in Scripture. And when I get to heaven and I meet Levi, Matthew, it'll be a great conversation. Hey, tell me your story. Fill it out. Let me know. What what drove you to the table that day when Jesus walked by and, and stopped looking at the crowd and started looking at a man? We know he had a story. He's more than a name. He's a man. Jesus saw him sitting at the tax collector table, leaves the crowd, and reaches out to this man. Follow me. And Matthew never looks back. He gets up from the table and follows Jesus. Think about this. Peter 
and Andrew, James and John, if this whole Jesus experiment didn't work out, they could go back to fishing, right? Jesus had called them away from fishing. They could go back to that and they would have their life. Not Matthew. You walk away from Rome and the job you had with Rome, you're, you're black marked. You're, mar- you know, you're, you're, you're pressed out, you're ostracized. And, and you don't have a job to go back to anymore. You're labeled as traitorous. But Matthew was willing to do so. I don't think this was the first interaction that Matthew had with Jesus. At least Matthew had seen some of the things that were happening at Peter's house, happening in the region, happening in the cities around them. He knew of Jesus before this, and that's why I think he was able to say, yes, I want to follow you. What was Matthew seeing in Jesus that he was willing to walk away from all that he had? You know what he saw? He saw real. He saw the opposite of hypocrisy. He saw authenticity. He saw truth. And that was so appealing to him that he was willing to forsake all that he had to follow after him. And I don't think that that's unique to Matthew. I think all of us desire that in our lives. We want something to be true. We need authenticity in our lives because we deal with fake all the time. I'll never forget years ago, I was down at a pastor's conference in Florida. This was before we had started our study, and I had a desire to reach out to college-age students. I had a passion for the 18 to 25-year-olds, and as they walked that crossroads of life, meeting them there with Jesus. And we were at this pastor's conference, and the place was packed out. Calvary Chapel pastor's conferences are packed out. 3,000 people there. And the, the, the evening session, um, some of the students from the Calvary Chapel Bible College had the opportunity to come to the evening session. So there were even more people there. Something like 30 or 40 students came. But rather than taking up seats, in the, in the kindness of their heart, they chose to sit on the floor. So they kind of sat up front in front of all the pews. They, they filled one of the aisleways so that, that other people could have the seats. And they were gathered in that position long before worship started. And I saw all these college students, and I was like, you know, thinking about starting a Bible study. I was like, I'm going to go talk to them, which is not like me. I'm an introvert, right? I'm going to go sit with them because I want to hear from them. And I sat down with these eight or ten college students. I was like, hey, how's it going? And I explained, I want to start a Bible study. I want to reach college students. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, what's the one thing? If you were to say to somebody starting a Bible study that's going to minister to college students, what's the one thing I need in order to properly minister to college students? And all of them said, authenticity. It wasn't you need to know your Bible inside out and backwards. It wasn't that you needed to know how to lead worship. It wasn't that you needed to know you know, the Levitical law and the Mosaic law and the different governments. And it wasn't any of that. The one thing that they said that they were desperate for, just don't be fake. Be real. I need authenticity in my life. You do too. We all do. That's what Matthew was looking for. After mentioning hypocrisy not, you know, more times than the rest of the Bible, that's what Matthew was looking for. I just need truth. And he found it in Jesus Luke says Matthew left all. In this story, in the, in the account in Luke, Matthew left all. And I would add, but lost nothing. Matthew left all, but lost nothing. 
to follow Jesus. And that, that, that expression, follow me, that's not like a one-time thing. It's the present part of participle, which means it's like a continuous, ongoing thing. It's, it would better be translated, be following me. It, like continually active, be following me. That's the, the role that you and I are to take. We are to be continually following after Jesus. It's not just the first step, it's every step thereafter till we see him face to face. And then Jesus goes to his house. Levi's, you know, like he told Zacchaeus, he's going to tell Levi, hey, I'm eating at your house tonight. And Levi goes home and he begins to prepare a meal and he wants to welcome his guest, Jesus, and, and fill the house with people. One problem. Matthew doesn't have any friends. He's turncoated on everybody. Everybody hates him. So what does he do? The only thing he can. He fills it with more people like him, tax collectors. Hey, I want you to meet this guy, Jesus. Sinners, those that were outcasts, prostitutes. And they fill the house. And Jesus gladly goes into that house to, to sup with them, to eat with them, to dine with them. And then the religious leaders of the day come on the scene, the Pharisees and Sadducees. And, and just imagine their hearts as they walk by and see this scene, Jesus eating with all these people. <laughs> all right, give me the hand sanitizer. Yuck. Understand this, and this is probably what the Pharisees and Sadducees were thinking to some degree. In their culture, if you were to break bread with somebody, meaning to sit down with a me at a meal with somebody, you were united with that person. You were connected with that person. They placed great value on sitting at the table with somebody. And so as they see Jesus now sitting with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes, that's probably what's going through their mind. He's uniting himself with them. Yeah. Jesus understands what they're thinking well, he hears what they say, and he reacts to them. Jesus says, no. No, I'm not fellowshipping with them. I'm their doctor. They're my patients. They need me to be here. You see, our relationship with the world changes when we accept the invitation to follow him. And we can no longer fellowship with the world when we have accepted following Christ. We become messengers of a higher thing. We become ambassadors of a new kingdom. We carry the message that he has given us to carry, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. We can no longer fellowship with the world. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But that does not mean, and hear this, that does not mean that we put up four walls, that we envelop ourselves in a Christian bubble, and we never touch the world again. That's not what Jesus does. He doesn't fellowship with them, but we are to be in the world. That's not of it. We are to be like that healing balm that Jesus brings, the good news, the, 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 the touching of a person's heart. Jesus certainly is the great physician. 
Consider this, as he is the great physician. His first diagnosis is always right. Right? Those of you that have been in and out of doctor's offices as they try to figure out what's wrong with you, you know how that goes. That's why they call it practicing medicine. Right? They're, they're trying. And uh, nothing against doctors. They're doing the very best they can using all the knowledge they have. But God is in, you know, has all knowledge. Omniscient. And so his first diagnosis is always right. And then his first prescription Whatever the prescribed thing that he gives you to heal what's wrong with you is always perfect. He doesn't have to test or try different medicines. The first prescription is always perfect. And here's the best part. As the great physician, he pays the bill himself. What doctor do you know that does that, right? I got this one, boy. Yeah. But Jesus, by going to the cross, by shedding his blood that we might have our stripes healed, as it said in Isaiah 53. Jesus, the great physician, pays our bill that we might be healed. So Matthew invites Jesus to his home because he recognizes he's sick. He recognizes his own sickness. He's desperate for something authentic. Just give me something real, And Jesus takes center stage in his life, replaces all his idols, perhaps even that greed that drove him to the tax table. Follow me. And Matthew never looks back. So let's draw this all together and let's build on some concepts that we've been talking about for the past couple weeks. And if this is your first Sunday, forgive me for not reviewing them all in depth. We mentioned a couple weeks ago the, the beauty of watching somebody who has devoted their life to one thing, like the Olympic athlete who seven days, six, seven days a week, eight, nine, ten hours a day, devotes themselves to their sport. And then you see them on that glorious stage, powerlifting, you know, judo, swimming, gymnastics, whatever it is. It's beautiful to watch when you see somebody devoted their life to one thing. And that's what Jesus was all about. I come to do the will of the Father. As he prayed early in that morning after he had healed, uh, or after he had, um, healed the many in Peter's house, and the, and the disciples came to him, hey, the crowd is waiting for you. He had already checked in with his master. He had already checked in with his father. I'm doing the will of the Father. And he says, take off, go to another town. And he does, and he heals the leper. As we live, and you and I are called to do that as well, live a life devoted to just one thing, honoring our God, living for Him. As we live a life devoted to one thing, I said last week that the first step in doing that is having a willingness to get uncomfortable. You recall that? It's, it's as, you know, say I were to suddenly desire to become the next power lifter for the Olympics. <laughs> um. <laughs> So I would wake up tomorrow, you know, I'd set the alarm for 4.30. And I do set the alarm for 4.30 on Tuesday and Wednesday. My first step in becoming the next great power lifter is a willingness to get uncomfortable with my schedule. It's a willingness to eat the things that I need to eat in order to be properly fit. It's a willingness to get uncomfortable. 
What I suggest as we pursue living a life for God, and we've come to the point that we're willing to say, yeah, I will get uncomfortable. Can I suggest this is the way that you and I get uncomfortable? That we move from looking at the crowd to looking at the man. That we move from knowing, seeing the sea of people to hearing the story. Right As you watched the game last night, if you did, you see 106, 107, 108,000 people there. And as they pan the crowd, you can't pick anybody out. It's just a sea of scarlet and gray. And you, you, we need to move from that viewpoint to recognizing one person like Jesus did. We need to move from the, those are the refugees to those are families who have been displaced from their home. They have a story. We need to move from calling them ISIS to calling them men who have been deceived by a false religion and they're on their way to hell. They need to hear the gospel. We need to move from calling them neighbors to calling them Jeff and Tony and Troy and Mary Beth and Ashanta and Tiffany. My neighbors. We need to move from just pushing through our life with our agenda and being willing to stop once in a while and look somebody in the eye and say, tell me your story. I saw that happen in the parking lot this morning here at church. People that had an agenda, things to do as they came into church early this morning and somebody stopped to hear somebody's story. Beautiful to watch. Stop seeing crowds. Let's start seeing lives. Let's start seeing souls that need the message that the great physician gave you and I. The healing balm that we carry with us. I was talking with a friend this week We've been talking about church analytics. I know, fun topic. But looking at the numbers of church, and, and not just for the sake of numbers, but trying to measure how people are growing within the church. And we had a lengthy discussion about the different ways to measure these markers of growth. And it was a, it was a great conversation. And there's benefit to doing that. But as I texted him after we had had our conversation, I said, man, I love all of this, but the one thing I don't want to do is just see numbers anymore. I don't want to see numbers. I want to see people. I want to see lives. I want to see souls. So may I suggest that as we step into this pursuing God with everything that we have, we say we're willing to get uncomfortable. The first step I think we need to take is that we move from seeing the crowd to seeing one man one woman, and hearing their story, and knowing their life, and being willing to meet them where they're at with the good news of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's close in prayer. If you're a man or a woman today who isn't yet on that journey pursuing God with all that you have, let me tell you, man, I was sick. 
with a sickness that couldn't be cured by any doctor here on earth. A sin sickness. Who when I met Jesus and he bore the bill himself upon his back. Healed me. Purified me. Cleansed me. And you're sick too. And you're in need of that touch of Christ. And it would be my encouragement to you to step forward today after we sing. And talk to some of the men or women that are up here. Let them ask you. Let them get to know you. Let them pray with you so you can make Jesus the Lord of your life today. Be willing to take that step. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the invitation to come as we are, as Levi did, to just forsake what we know and follow you. I pray that we would be following you, Lord, continuously, actively. God, that we would forsake the, the attachments we have in this world, that we would step away from the pattern of this world, God, to pursue you. But that, wouldn't, that we wouldn't surround ourselves with uh, this counterculture, that we would be in the world still, carrying the message that you have given us to carry, teaching people to observe all that you have commanded. Lord, may we be reminded that at the end of the Great Commission, you say you are with us till the very end of the age. Lord, until you return, you have sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts that we might be and bear your witness on this earth. Fill our mouths. Open our eyes to the pain, the sorrow, the suffering around us. And give us your heart in these days. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.